1: Welcome to the Smart Talk Series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk Series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in November of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. John Romer. Dr. Romer is quite fascinating, to say the least. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard and went on to UC Berkeley for his graduate degree, but was suspended for his political activity against the Vietnam War. After spending some time teaching, he would eventually return to Berkeley to finish his PhD in economics in 1974. He is currently the Elizabeth S. and A. Varick Stout Professor of Political Science and Economics at Yale University and a fellow at the Econometric Society as well as the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has contributed to numerous economic journals on topics such as labor economics, political competition, and climate change. In addition to journals, Dr. Romer has published numerous books such as Free to Lose, A General Theory, and A Future of Socialism, all of which revolve around inequality and its relation to the political economy. Together with Dr. Romer, we discuss the rise of Bernie Sanders, issues with Marx's labor theory of value, and how redistribution can take the form of more than just welfare programs. It was quite an interesting discussion. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode.
0: Well, Professor Romer, uh, glad you're with us. Uh, For the audience... uh we wanted to interview John Romer because we think he covers in his book, Free to Lose, the most essential questions on how to organize and think about society. So He's a professor at Yale and uh, the book is a little dense in terms of uh, difficulty, but it really covers all the essential issues that are debated every day in the, in, in the world and people don't realize that uh, John Romer has dealt with these issues in an intellectual way. And, and so we're going to pick his brain kind of in a Marxian sense, a capitalist sense, only peripherally in a Georgia sense because he, he bumps into that with some of his thinking and assertions. But Professor Romert, uh, the first thing that, uh, that strikes me is, of course, in, in Free to Lose, that uh, you essentially say that capital is the dominant factor and that th- if there's an unequal distribution of capital, in society those people who have that favorite dist- distribution essentially are going to win the game at the end of the day regardless of the gyrations that the economy will go through then essentially in a in a deep sense the game is determined by that distribution of capital and there's nothing nothing necessarily evil about that in the beginning but it becomes all determining in the end and would you care to elaborate on that uh, Essentially, well, it's, it's an anti-Marxist position in a
2: way. But uh. this book was written uh, in 19. It was published, I think, in 1988, which mm-hmm. is 28 years ago. Yeah. And it's interesting that the the book by Thomas Piketty that was published uh, two years ago, uh-huh. called "Capital in the 21st Century," uh, did Piketty did some wonderful empirical work, historical work over the last 20 years or so. Uh, tracing what the distribution of ownership of capital has been in a number of countries in the world, particularly the advanced countries, the United States, and the European countries. And the basic lesson of his book is that capital is uh, again on the ascendancy after a slight pause mm-hmm. uh, caused by uh, the first and second year, uh, Second World Wars, right. and the Great Depression. Uh, so that the fraction of uh, the concentration of capital, which is to say the, f- the amount of capital owned by the very top uh, 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 echelons of society, the top 1% or the top one-tenth of 1%, is higher than it has been since before World War I. Uh, I don't have the, fig- the figures at my fingertips, but I think that the top uh, 1% of Americans now own, uh, what is it? You may know the 35, figure.
0: 35% to 40%. 30, it looks 30% like. of, yeah. total,
2: of total capital. Um, and that's a figure, I think, uh, that was only, it was only, the last time it was that high was in 1914. Right. So uh, capital is reestablishing itself after uh, hard times, uh, which were caused by the wars, the mm. world wars, and... Uh, the depression and is now uh, lo- on the trajectory to be as powerful as it was in the nineteenth century, so I think in that sense the um, the Marxist uh, predictions, which I think were wrong on a number of uh, yeah, like on a number of points, that, okay. uh, have been quite accurate that uh, this increasing inequality is not something uh, that we 've been talking about uh, politically for the last few years is not a flash in the pan, it's going back to the natural behavior of a capitalist uh, society and economy.
0: Well, let me just say that Professor Romer in his book gives some theoretical examples which almost prove the inevitability of what he just described empirically, that uh, capital, if you tra- trace the logic, has such a dominant position relative to labor that eventually it works out to, be, to fulfill what Piketty found to be true. And I think Piketty finds that to be true over 200 years with the exception of major wars. Uh, and of course, you have some, we'll talk about it, you have some uh, moral uh, discussions about that uh, particular point. But one of the things you do mention with the, with the, uh, uh, the, the maldistribution of, of, of capital, you say that that can arise almost accidentally even if people started off with the same endowment that essentially with unequal abilities for example or different preferences in savings essentially you could you could equalize that distribution and have an unequal distribution evolve over time and so that it almost becomes an inevitability that unequal distribution of capital as a prior is going to exist you your comment on that
2: i think that's true uh uh, capital is just a synonym for wealth. Uh, it means the total value of all uh, mm-hmm. productive assets that can be traded on markets. So it doesn't include the value of labor because uh, it doesn't include the the value of your human capital because right. you can't sell your human capital on a market. It does, uh, however, include the value of all the stock, of financial wealth, uh, real estate, uh, and so on. Okay. Now. Um, And so it's very good for a society to have a lot of wealth, obviously it makes the society more secure. The problem is when it becomes extremely concentrated in the hands of a small number of people. And the injustice of that concentration uh, uh, comes from the fact that not all people have the same opportunities to accumulate capital. Some people started off with inheritances from their wealthy parents. Uh, Perhaps even more important than that, some people have very advantaged upbringings in families that care a lot about education and pour a lot of resources into their children. Other people don't have those advantages. They don't have parents who are well-educated or have resources to inject in them. Uh, And and also people are born with different natural talents, which is purely a matter of luck, in my opinion. uh I don't think a person has a has a moral right to live better than other people because of the luck of the birth lottery which includes two uh, principally two kinds of luck the luck of the family that you were born into and the wealth and education that it has and the luck of your genetic endowment so the basic injustice of capitalism is that it allows these kinds of luck to be parlayed into tremendous financial wealth and uh, for some people, and uh, poverty uh, uh, for other people who don't have those uh, resources. Um, So I want to make clear I'm not against the accumulation of wealth for a society, I'm all for that, but I think the problem with capitalism is that the wealth is extremely unequally distributed uh, and uh, the goal of socialism is to uh, somehow come up with a way of running an economy which has the wealth distributed more or less equally in the society.
0: All right, let me ask you this on the, essentially when you do your analysis, you use a, a two-factor model, uh, capital and labor, which essentially comes from Marx, his original uh, econometric work as a two-factor model. I just wanted to get your opinion on capital the makeup of capital. We Georgians would argue that uh, those assets that are from nature, land, natural resources, would act differently in an economic analysis than than it would be if it was congealed into man-made capital and and analyzed as one factor, including the two. Uh, We argued with Piketty on that point. Essentially, uh, we did an interview with Yanis uh, Varoufakis on Piketty, you know, c- critiquing uh, uh, Piketty's book. Uh, what is, What is your opinion on uh, doing the analytical, the analytical work you do? Is a two-factor model, and it illustrates many of the points we'll talk about. But the fact that the two-factor uh, includes land rental rental uh, assets, uh, we argue is is misleading if uh, if you impact it or pack it in with uh, with man-made capital, I wanted to get your opinion on that from an analytical point of view.
2: I think, from an analytical point of view, the difference between land and natural resources on the one hand, and uh, factories on the other, mm-hmm. or produced produced wealth in that sense, is not terribly important. So I I don't agree with you on that. Okay. I don't agree with the Georgist position. Uh, the difference, of course, there is some. There is a difference. Uh, uh, produced capital uh, can machines and uh, so on can uh, more or less uh, easily be uh, produced at any level that one wants to do so if one has the if one has the wealth to do it. Whereas land is limited. Now you right. can improve land and so on, but land and natural resources are limited. So uh, they 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 are different in that sense from produced capital. Uh, but I don't think there's a particularly a moral difference between the ownership of land uh, and uh, the ownership of uh, well, movable capital.
0: Not a moral difference, but a functional difference. And we would argue that land and resources has a better ability to capture monopoly than, let's say, man-made capital, which theoretically can be reproduced and competitively, you know, dealt with. So only in that sense. And we don't make a moral issue of that. We just say that from an analytical pers- uh, point of view. One is more easily replicated and, therefore, has a less likely uh, monopoly inheritance to it than, than, than man-made capital. That would be our distinction.
2: Yeah. But well, if you- there are, two, there are two reasons that land uh, might be associated with monopoly or anything also produced capital. One is that it's all owned by a very small number of people. Uh, and the other is that they're increasing returns to scale so that it's economically efficient. To have, it, uh, uh, to have it owned by a single person or, or controlled by a single firm, put it that way. Um, uh, I don't think that there are, that the issue, that I don't think the second reason holds for natural resources. I, I'm not familiar with arguments that say there are vast increasing returns to scale in the use of land or natural resources. No. It seems to me that's not true. That's not true. We and the that. ownership issue is a purely political issue. How do we decide? That society should own its natural resources. Should it? Should we allow it to be concentrated in the hands of a no, small number of people, or should it be owned by the state, or should it be owned by individuals, uh, each having their own share? I mean, these are political uh-huh. questions. So I don't see that it's uh, that there's a natural reason that monopoly is more associated with natural resources than with uh, than with financial capital and other kinds of firms. Okay. All right.
0: One of the points you make about capital, of course, that inevitably uh, there's not enough, uh, there's always more labor than capital. Therefore, labor is always in an inferior bargaining position, which results in uh, essentially the ability to generate profits. And my question to you is I mean, that's an assertion of yours, and it seems to be borne out in reality, but where's the logic? Why does capital always have to be scarce? relative to labor. What is the, the driving mechanism in your mind for that? And Marx would have said uh, essentially, you know, the reserve army is always being created by by technological obsolescence, or so, and Rosa Luxemburg would have said, well, you're gonna bring in cheap labor from all around the world. But you're making the assertion, which is quite strong and quite interesting, that uh, with the unequal endowment of capital, it's always going to find more labor and that labor can generate with that capital a profit. It's a, an interesting uh, assertion on your part. Would you elaborate on
2: that? Uh- I wish I had an answer. That's a wonderful question. I wish I had an answer to it, and I don't. Uh, I just uh, am, I, I, like you, have observed that uh, uh-huh. since the advent of capitalism, uh, mm-hmm. Capital has always been relatively scarce, mm-hmm. uh, scarce relative to the labor available for it to employ. Mm-hmm. Now, as you pointed out, Rosa Luxemburg had a theory that the justification or the explanation of why imperialism occurs, which is the attempt to expand capital's orbit to uh, increasingly uh, large sections of the globe and to encompass more uh, workers uh, in its orbit. Uh, is necessary in order for capitalism to maintain, in order for capital to maintain its relative scarcity. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's, uh, I don't think we can say that Mm -hmm. capitalism deliberately engages in imperialism to keep labor scarce. Mm -hmm. It, It engages in imperialism because it's looking for new markets and so on. And one of the consequences of that is that uh, labor—I mean, abundant—is is that labor remains abundant. But for the the deeper question, why is it the case that labor has been historically abundant relative to employment opportunities in the capitalist sector? I don't have a—I don't okay. have a deep understanding of that.
0: Okay, that's a good. Uh, I'm glad you pointed that out. And we we're, we're searching for that answer. But let's segue from that. Into the United States situation of of free trade and offshoring. I mean, you do you discuss that uh, in, in, in 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 your book? Essentially, in in the context of that's a way to to get labor excess labor. You mentioned you mentioned uh, going offshore, and you also ma- mentioned in 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 migration as a way to, uh, in effect, create a reserve army which it does, and, uh, and we see the effects in, in the United States over the last 30 or 40 years. It's kept uh, labor in check, kept it in, in place. Now, uh, you also make the assertion, uh, and I think it's a good one, are we more entitled than East Asians to a good standard of living? Uh, or do we have the right to, let's say, protect our standard of living against an inferior standard of living that we found in East Asia when we started the offshoring and outsourcing, do you have any 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 thoughts on that? Uh, because we, in effect, did do that. We can discuss why we did it, but the question of, you know, the argument today, people will say, "Well, look, why are you begrudging Chinese workers the opportunity to get a, a much better job than they had before, even if it doesn't equal the average American, if it, in effect, creates a um, a a group of Americans who've lost." the old traditional high wages that they once had because the manufacturing was let, pushed from here back, back to East Asia. And in migration was also allowed to, in effect, add to the pressures on labor. Your comments on that?
2: Well, I think uh, I agree with what you said. I would say it a little more strongly. I think the uh, discussion of uh, the consequences of trade and uh, on the working classes of the advanced countries, in particular in our country, the U.S., in the United States, has been extremely parochial. Um, From a global point of view, I think the the most important thing that's happened with respect to distributive justice Mm -hmm. in the last 30 or 40 years has been the massive income growth, of about a billion of the poorest people in the world, namely the Chinese. So China has grown at a over 9% uh, a year in terms of its GDP um, uh, since about 1980. And so the incomes, the real incomes of people in China over that last 35, 40 years have risen by a factor of 13, 13. So it's as if you were 13 times as... As if your income were 13 times as large as your grandparents' income. That's what's happened in China. So they pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. I mean, some people say 800, as many as 800 people, 800 million people have have leaped out of poverty, leapt out of poverty in China due to this tremendous growth. Now, suppose the consequence of that is that American. Uh, a section of American workers have had their income stagnate, which is, uh, their incomes have stagnated, that's true, whether to the extent that, that the consequence of the Chinese growth is not completely established. But let's say that a good fraction, or a good part of the responsibility for the stagnation of the growth of income of Chinese, of American workers, is uh, is the fact that China has taken away markets from the United States by producing manufactured goods that the American workers used to produce. It's not the whole story, but it's certainly part of the story. You I against- still state that overall the uh, consequences are good from the point of view of global justice. Now, is there a way of protecting the American working class and the working classes of advanced countries so that their... Uh, welfare does not uh, have to be reduced uh, in order to enable the Chinese and the Indian working classes to have a better life and I think there is there is it means we have to educate our workers much more we have to we have to upgrade the skills of American workers so that they can move into areas which are beyond the frontiers of what the Chinese are doing We have to work in more sophisticated ways and in more sophisticated industries. We can't make cars anymore because the Chinese can do that very well or televisions or whatever. So we have to move into much more sophisticated stuff. And that means we have to have uh, a working class, which is more sophisticated, better trained, knows more mathematics and so on. And so the and we also have to invest in more infrastructure to make our uh, technology more sophisticated. We are really way behind in infrastructure, of course. We know this. A lot of people are talking about it. But that's the solution. The solution is not to um, erect trade barriers, which prevent us from importing the Chinese Mm -hmm. goods. The solution is to upgrade our own infrastructure and working class skills so that we can remain competitive and move on to industries, right. which the Chinese are not in yet.
0: All right, let me uh, extend that discussion from an American uh, point of view. Uh, an argument would be, not only were the wages down, but a lot of the jobs were lost. But you would argue that the capital-labor ratio <clears throat> is a very important <clears throat> ratio in economics, and that on, on, uh, uh, on analysis, our capital labor ratio is greater than the Chinese. And therefore, the gains of trade somehow are benefiting, benefiting us better in some global sense. I think you would argue that in, in your, your, your analysis of, of free trade, the country that can get more labor for less labor, is a winner. Now, in America's case, that may be the case. But the gains from that, of course, have not been distributed equally in the society, that they, they, they accrue to people who manage money, finance, and so forth, so that there's a distributional problem. But going even further than that, I mean, the history of the United States in its development uh, in the 1800s to the 1900s was, was one of free trade internally and, and protectionism externally. And the argument w- was essentially that, that although England certainly was in the same position the United States is today relative to China, that the Americans decided it had to learn the technologies that England had on its own so they could capture the gains from that. And then at some point in time, they could allow free trade when they were the dominant partner. And I think by the 1880s, the United States achieved technical ascendancy by using protectionism and then free trade within the continental United States. And I think the deeper argument is that the learning by doing aspects of capturing that technology were very important for further development. So that if you give away your technology, let's say the United States giving away its manufacturing, that somehow you give away the generative uh, capability to do what you say, educate workers and so forth. But the fact is that the high ground will be held by those who manufacture. At least that's the simple argument on, 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 on that point. And, uh, and uh, I would extend that even further that the United States would have made the argument to free trade and outsource partially to let's say disciplined labor but also i think it had the understanding that world war one and world war two were essentially uh our target countries like germany and japan wanting to muscle their way into the world trade situation and we basically with england fought that off and then we decided this can't go on this way that we'd have to basically free trade the world to relieve that pressure. So our agenda there would have been to, to world peace in one sense and free trade where we had the advantage in another sense. But that we've given up a lot of the high ground in manufacturing terms of trade would say that's okay for this point in time, but if that has generative ability to develop new technology, new ideas over time, the argument would be the, the, who he who manufactures ultimately wins that game in the long term. I know there's a lot of a lot of questions buried in there, but your comments on that as an astute observer of, of, of the arguments here. In other words, I would say Americans achieved world domination in the 1880s with less than a high school average education. That education is uh, is necessary, not sufficient for for, for world domination. So that the, the Americans don't have manufacturing, but they get more and more educated. The Chinese would simply do the same thing.
2: Look. Well, I mean, what you... The argument you gave is called the infant industry argument, that you may want to protect industries which are just getting started, new industries in a country, so that they don't get wiped out by competition from more sophisticated uh, firms uh, in other parts of the world. And that's, of course, an important argument. Uh, One should have infant industry protection. But the kind of protection that people like Trump are talking about is not protecting infant industries is protecting geriatric industries right 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 I, I mean there's no there's no economic rationale to protect the auto industry in this country mm-hmm. or the industry that makes television sets or textiles these are not infant industries they're old industries that it required relatively unskilled labor and they can be produced much more cheaply the firms that produce those commodities and produce them much more cheaply in countries where labor is less educated and cheaper than it is in the United States. And that's what should be done. Now, the critical thing is you have to make a transition for the workers who were in those industries and lose their jobs. And the way to do that is to tax the people who benefit from the international division of labor and to redistrib- and to take the some of the gains they make uh, uh, from globalization and to invest them in these uh, things we've been talking about infrastructure and more education for uh, American workers so that they can move into more sophisticated industries so the, there's it is true neoclassical economics emphasizes the fact that free trade uh, is good for a nation that's true But it does it didn't break down who it was good for in the nation. Uh, If free trade is good for the United States on average, that is to say, there are total gains from trade, they can be redistributed uh, so that everybody gains. And that's what hasn't been done, and that's that's what has given rise uh, largely to the Trump phenomenon, to the support of Trump Mm -hmm. by American uh, relatively uneducated workers who have seen their income stagnate and who have lost jobs. So the solution is to tax the gainers, uh, the finance people and the big capitalists who uh, make a lot of, uh, you know, who have an international, multinational corporations and use, use cheap labor in other parts of the world to tax them and to use the taxes to, uh, as I say, upgrade upgrade the conditions of work in the United States.
0: Okay, well, I would argue uh, there we come into the unequal endowment problem of the people who who retain the high ground, and we, we, we retain the high ground for finance and, de- and defense, and in effect, uh, we tax the world with the with our dollar to pay for these goods which uh, are necessary to stabilize the world in a, in, a, in a big sense. But the people who work in, let's say, government and, and, and finance in America, who are capturing Outsize gains, they show no desire to be taxed for the benefit of everybody else. In other words, I can make the argument that they would see themselves as part of an elite structure that can relate to elite structures around the world, but their own people uh, would not seem to have the same priority. And if that's the case, then there's no impetus to tax and equalize uh, for the population that suffered the loss. I think the argument would be, and I, I would just... Uh, hazard a guess that we really don't need those people, we can insulate ourselves away from those people, and that they basically, if we push them up and we subsidize them, they're going to be taking resources at a heavy rate in a world which is now coming to understand that resources are finite. So that all of the pressure would be not to redistribute in, in, in the face of your argument, which makes sense. It's, your argument on that has been called for for the last 20 or 30 years and has fallen essentially on on deaf ears. So uh, if that's not going to happen, then you're going to have a more and more unequal society, more and more unequal distribution of capital. And therefore, as you have proven logically, the uh, the gains cannot flow to anybody else. No, no I don't agree
2: much- with, I don't think that's correct. I think okay. social movements... People can get organized and they can uh, redistribute the income in their societies. The United States has been the country in which the concentration of wealth has grown uh, the most rapidly. The concentration has not grown so rapidly in Europe, in the European countries. So after the United States, Britain, the concentration has grown rapidly. But in continental Europe, it has not. It's beginning to start to grow but they're way behind the United States in the concentration of of wealth. And that's because they have strong labor parties, socialist parties, social democratic parties, relatively strong trade unions, and they have kept, they have redistributed a -hmm. substantial amount of of wealth in those countries. And as I say, don't think of the redistribution as simply paying incomes to poor people. It mainly should take the form of improving the endowments of poor people by mainly through education, and also the public endowments which are good for everybody, which is infrastructure. So I don't think it's inevitable. I think we're now in a very interesting time. It's a very dangerous time with uh, nativism and fascism, you neo-fascism know, and racism and xenophobia uh, increasing on the one hand, but on the other hand, also demands for redistribution. I think the Bernie Sanders campaign right, right. was a big surprise. I was very happy that Sanders had the kind of big support he had. Now Sanders is not a super left-wing guy, he's kind of a FDR, an FDR yeah, yeah, liberal, yeah, yeah. Good point. but he was calling for things, going back to basically the growth of infrastructure, the welfare state education, you know, a better redistribution of wealth from the very wealthy to the rest of the people in this country, and he had a tremendous response. So. Uh, on the one hand, there's been a kind of a left-wing response to to the global crisis, which has caused the stagnation of incomes mm-hmm. in this country for large numbers of people. And on the other hand, there's been a right-wing response with Trump, very dangerous response. But uh, uh, both responses are there, and I'm hoping, of course, that the the left response grows, and I think it may. I, it's very hard to predict these things. Right, right. Well, of course,
0: talking about Germany. Uh, you can understand why Germany would have uh, a, a strong uh, leveling uh, uh, psychology. I mean, they've, they've suffered two world wars and basically been crushed in two world wars. And I think the population is much more sophisticated in terms of what the, what the likelihood that they would become capitalists en masse and have great wealth. I think the Germans were smart enough to insist upon labor participation as a prerequisite of designing a society. I don't think the American electorate has that that particular, felt that kind of pain to develop that kind of consciousness. But that's just my comment on, on that. It's possible, I agree with you, that the Bernie Sanders spontaneous movement was a surprise, more so than I think the Trump movement. Trump movement is understandable. The Bernie Sanders is a movement of young kids who who are being educated and look to the future and see that their prospects have been diminished and they see no, no other way but redistrib- redistribution to, uh, uh, to to equal their, their their opportunities. But having discussed that, I wanted to go back to your discussions on Marx, which I think have lots of applicability. You, you essentially say that, that Marx, in terms of his understanding of history, kind of got the predictions right, but that some of the salient tenets of his theory are wrong, and I think that's uh, very, very interesting. And I know it's a flashpoint for many Marxist or ultra-left people that um, that you basically have, have kind of proven that the labor theory of value is really not necessary, you know, to be a Marxist, Marxist predictor of, of, of social social trends. And I wanted to discuss. The labor theory of value, with you. I mean, you be, you essentially model it, you know, and develop uh, the Morishima theory of uh, of uh, how to account for labor and capital and how it goes together. The Marx, the Marxists basically said, well, kind of the same thing that uh, capital is always going to be in a driving 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 position. There'll always be too much labor. Uh, they understand about creating a reserve army, but they can never solve the math of the labor theory of value so that they basically had to come up with a transformation solution which is a crude approximation of how you would look at the, the labor theory of value and and basically disprove it the argument would be that a good marxist would say that the transformation problem in its mathematical mess uh, you know in its mathematical derivation kind of equalizes the fact that labor if it's not in a particular industry, by the transformation problem, it's assigned enough labor so that, in effect, you've got a labor theory of value, just not a one-to-one correspondence on that. you comment on a very controversial 100-year argument in the Marxist world about the transformation problem and the labor theory of value.
2: Well, I I don't want to talk mainly about the labor theory of value, I think, I think Marx's uh, conception which was not just marx's it was goes back to ricardo was it, right it's not right uh, that the basic idea was that the fundamental determinant of prices in a capitalist economy is the is the labor embodied in the production of of the goods produced which are price and i don't think that's a particularly useful theory um, i think the Basically, it's a theory that says that it's the costs of production that determine the price. Right. Big and a big cost. Probably the biggest one is the labor cost. But the other side of the coin is that demand for goods also has an effect on price. And you need both supply and demand to determine the price. And that's what modern uh, economics uh, has clarified, I think, a great deal. So I don't think the labor theory of value uh, as such was. Was useful. Uh, it's not a mathematical problem, the transformation okay. problem. It's the fact that the basic inspiration of, of was wrong. Um, now, I think the by far the most important uh, uh, thing that I really uh, quite disagree quite a lot with Marx about is uh, is the the question of markets. So Marx had an antipathy to markets, and that. The the consequence of that is that the big, the two big uh, socialist revolutions in the 20th century, namely the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 and the Chinese Maoist Revolution in 1949, uh, didn't use prices, shunned prices, tried not to use prices, let's put it that way, not to use a market economy because they felt that markets would regenerate capitalism. And I think that's not right. I think any complex economy needs to use markets. And I think we can use markets under socialism, and we're going to have to. Uh, We can't solve all these problems simply by central planning, which dictate how goods should be allocated, or even dictate the prices. The issue is how to use markets without having the concentration of wealth develop. And that's the problem. Under capitalism, there are no restrictions to the accumulation of wealth. And under socialism, there must be restrictions. So firms that get to be a certain size will have to be, in my view, nationalized or split up so that they're owned in small fractions by many people instead of by a small fraction of people who become very wealthy. I'm not saying we have to have only small firms, I'm saying that only small firms should be privately ownable. You can own a restaurant or a corner store or maybe even a firm that sells, you know, has a sales of of 100 million dollars a year, but there should be a cap on what the size of firm that can be that's owned good, by an a, individual a or insight. a small number of people uh, is, there should be a cap. So, I think that's the big mistake that was made in socialism and the Chinese reformed that in 1979 they decided to use markets and their growth took took off now unfortunately they're having a large a very sharp accumulation of of they have a, a sharp uh, development of inequality uh, of wealth ownership and income in China so they haven't stopped uh, concentration and but I think that's a political issue I don't think it's a question of it being impossible to control
0: also, but also that you're just talking about the Chinese, they've got an unbalanced economy because they've, they've relied on our consumer market and credit markets, which they finance, to relieve them of excess pro- productivity. So, how do they come back to a central tendency of balanced development? That's number one. But that's just a, 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 side, uh, a side comment. I also wanted to comment on the supply and demand uh, idea, where demand is a key. Component of price, uh, price. Uh, the Marxists would probably argue that supply and demand appears as a result of the prior mechanisms of capital and labor interacting with each other, so that the supply and demand generally is an effect of you know the exploitation of labor and the initial capitalist uh, uh, endowment. But that's a tough problem to prove or or resolve. Uh, I I know that uh, that. Demand uh, and and the marginal principle, you know, is much more robust in dealing with that. But a good Marxist would probably say, but supply and demand is just a surface uh, manifestation of the deep underlying situation. And therefore, it's the ultimate driver and that the marginality principle and the demand principle is really pre-given by some deep uh, performance of the the system on the cost side. You, You want to make a comment on that or... Or just basically dismiss it? I I
2: think that's vague. You're saying that uh, supply and demand are ephemeral, and and there's a deep underlying what? What's the deep underlying thing, which is, I mean, we have determination of prices is a question of being able to have a theory of what the income distribution is going to be in a society. And I think general equilibrium theory is a crowning achievement of, of economics, and it gives us a pretty good explanation under certain conditions of what the income distribution will be okay. given the endowments to people and given their their preferences and their needs okay. uh, so i don't i just think the marxist approach was was wrongheaded uh, uh uh and i don't i don't see any reason i mean it doesn't one doesn't have to endorse the labor theory of value or marx's view of price determination to be a socialist or a left winger or an egalitarian I think one, you can, prove that. one can understand that yeah. prices are d- not determined solely by labor content. They're determined also by demand, by people's needs and preferences, and uh, be perfectly uh, supportive of socialism. So it's a, it's an unnecessary uh, accoutrement for uh, uh, progressive thinking and for socialist thinking, okay. uh, which is just not scientifically correct.
0: Okay, all right, because they would argue that those preferences are endogenous endogenously
2: well they may be endogenous sure i mean people have needs and and preferences created by advertising and by the needs of capital okay that's true but it doesn't tell you that it's labor content that's determining their their preferences so the labor theory of value doesn't doesn't isn't rescued by understanding that preferences are endogenous
0: well, you made I mean, the point you made the degree. point preferences
2: you, might be somewhat yeah. different under socialism uh, it 's still true that an awful lot of what people want and express preference for are basically uh, needs of various kinds for for shelter and education and uh, and food and security and those things are pretty basic uh, okay. and so I'm not, i 'm not one who thinks we 're going to reform that the big problem of capitalism is the preferences are endogenous. I don't think that's the case.
0: Okay. Well, also, you would argue that you could develop a, a banana theory of value if you had to, or That's true. I mean, okay.
2: you, can, you can show that any commodity uh, must be exploited uh, in the sense that it uh, gives more value than it itself contains mm. in a system in which uh, there's going to be economic growth. Mm. Or profits—it's another way of saying it. So labor is not unique in that regard. One would have to find some other reason for labor's uniqueness. Now there are other reasons. Labor is embodied in human beings and mm. steel and coal, or not. But that doesn't mean that it's a better explanation of uh, of what prices are. I mean, the fact that labor is uh, unique in certain regards that are very important to to ourselves, to human beings, because producing labor involves uh, personal personal involvement in the way that producing coal doesn't, perhaps,
0: right, right.
2: Um, The uh, doesn't mean that that's the main explanation of how the economy works.
0: OK, well, that's, I think you've, you've, you've made a telling point there. They would argue, a Marxist or a socialist, may argue that because labor is so decisive in many ways, by shunting it aside and not having a labor theory of value, you're using you're losing some of the ancillary fo- focus for example the workplace it's the workplace that labor sees itself being uh, managed in some in some sense and so they would feel it's an, all of a piece that if uh labor was neutral why does it have to be managed in the braverman sense so uh, let's say
2: uh, well, so this is another point and on, on which i disagree with marxism uh marxism uh, or a lot of Marxists, in particular, there are certainly quotes from Marx to this effect. But also, people like the labor, uh, the Harry Braverman school, argued that the essence of capitalist exploitation and the secret of capitalist accumulation lay at the point of production. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think the main source of uh, wealth accumulation and the secret of capitalist acu- capital accumulation is in the distribution of assets it's in the distribution of ownership mm-hmm. i don't believe it's at the point of production okay. i think the kinds of things that happen at the point of production where bosses you know ex- uh, make workers work faster and they mistreat them Uh, And there's constant struggle at the point of production over how much labor is going to be extracted from the worker I think those are secondary issues in capitalism Mm -hmm. the reason there's a fight over the extraction of labor uh, From labor power at the point of production is because it's impossible to write a perfect contract for the exchange of labor for the wage suppose we could write perfect perfect and and costlessly enforceable contracts so whenever the contract was violated the worker could snap his fingers and it would be instantly uh uh, the contract would be instantly implemented boss would be fine if he'd asked him if he asked the worker to work well well, you're you're onto something because now let me just finish this point so if that were so there wouldn't be any there would be no action happening at the point of production there wouldn't be anything interesting happening there And I think that's the pure case of capitalism. Marx said he wanted to explain the accumulation of capital without resorting to cheating. He wanted to explain it in a system where all exchanges were uh, by the books. And I think... That means that, that he'd like to explain it in a world where there was none of this kind of petty stuff happening at the point of production. And there, the key expl- explanation of capital accumulation is the distribution of capital and the distribution of wealth. I think you it's made not, that, po- so you made, you made that point
0: brilliantly. I, I believe, and I think for, for readers and, and listeners and viewers of this, uh, John Rowan makes these points brilliantly in his book. And that's why it's so important. I mean, you have to come to grips with his book, as we're trying to do at the, at the present time. But we'll kind of end it on this kind of note. I think you, you assert that um, aside from the workplace coercion, that because of the way capitalism works, there's no the average person does not feel or see exploitation in any real sense. That's right. We just, just, we just, and I like feudalism where it's obvious because the peasant can see I work one 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 day for, for me one day for him I mean where you have the split that's palpable so I think you've, you've made an interesting observation there that uh, the obs- the the exploitation is not observed in capitalism would you want to elaborate on that is that uh, or is it self-evident well, I,
2: I think you said it correctly I mean the slave uh, and the serf can see very clearly that they spend part of their uh, week working, uh, you know, for their own subsistence, Uh, let's say the feudal serf on his own family plot, and then they spend the rest of the week working for the Lord or the Master on on his lands or, you know, in his mill. Uh, And so the division of the work week between uh, reproduction of oneself and one's family and on the other hand, producing goods for the Lord is very clear. Not so clear under capitalism. You spend the whole week putting on auto fenders. How do you, it's very hard to see. And then you take your wages and you buy your food. You didn't produce your food. So it becomes, I mean, Marx said, there's a, a veil cast over, uh, cast over the true social relations by the market mechanism and the division of labor. And I think that's a very apt point, a very important Marxist point. And the theory of exploitation that Marx proposed was trying to clarify the fact that that what's happening under capitalism is very similar in terms of wealth distribution to what was happening under feudalism, namely the worker only works for his own reproduction for a certain part of the week. And for the rest of the week, he's producing uh, goods which are owned by the capitalist and sold for his own profit. I think that's an extremely valuable part of the theory. But it's interesting to say that that part of the theory does not depend at all on the labor theory of value. Right. You don't yeah. To show that that's true, you don't need to say you, you can adopt the neoclassical theory of prices. So okay. you don't have to maintain the false labor theory of value to maintain the truth Of the fact that workers are you know producing for uh profits and the boss for a certain fraction of the work week or the work year okay well of
0: course essentially you're arguing that the unequal distribution of capital gives you a bargaining power advantage that is a decisive variable at the the end of the day that uh can't be gainsaid. Would would that be a fair position? Uh-
2: well, I mean, bargaining power is a kind of uh, has a technical meaning in the economics, and it implies that you're not in a market situation, that you're in a one-on-one situation bargaining with somebody. That's not the situation. I mean, the the so I wouldn't use bargaining power. I'd say that the uh, through the market, through the the workings of demand and supply, those who end up with capital, uh, if labor is relatively abundant, will end up getting a very large share of the social product. Mm. That's the way it works. Now, to understand how that happens, you have to do a little economic modeling, okay. and I do that in the book that you, yeah, you talk see, about. I it. have a very simple model with a farm and a factory and, right, right. and how the accumulation of capital occurs when labor is relatively abundant and hence the wage is forced down to a wage that permits uh, profits to go to the, cap- the capitalists.
0: Well, pound for pound, you've got to You have a heavyweight book there, I have to tell you.
1: And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.